Good morning, y'all. Uh, so good to see you uh, and to be with you. If we don't know one another, uh, hi, my name is Ashley. I'm uh, the priest here at Christ the King, and uh, we're thankful to have you with us. If this happens to be your first Sunday visiting, uh, welcome to the wilderness. We uh, here at Christ the King and in churches all over the world, of course, are about midway through the Lenten season. So for these last number of weeks, we've been journeying through Lent uh, together in a number of different ways. One of them is by practicing Sabbath uh, together in community groups. Uh, I hope that's going well for you, and I look forward to hearing. I've had a chance to hear from some of you um, about some of your experiences. Uh, nobody loves, let's be honest, thinking uh, together for the first time about Sabbath, because mostly it just feels like, you know, being reminded of what we know we should do and we're not doing, like going to the doctor. Um, uh, I choose to believe, though, that um, maybe a lot like going to the doctor or going to the gym, uh, that should you heed the advice, you know, of those who know what's good for your soul, that the hope and the intention is that as we press through Lent and get into Easter, that we will have established together some habits that would help us, like, actually live into and practice resurrection. Because I will tell you, there is nothing worse than Easter Sunday morning being able to be here, being in a room with people who are singing about the resurrection and have actually no real idea why it matters for them or any real hope that they would be able to live into it. So part of this season in the church's wisdom is about like creating some space um, in our own hearts, minds, and lives for what it is that God wants to do in light of the resurrection and the hope of it. And that's kind of what we're talking about uh, today, actually, is the practice of hope. We've been preaching through Romans um, during the Lenten season for a number of reasons, but um, most maybe memorably, we talked last week about why Romans. And so before we jump into Romans 5 today, I want to do a brief recap of what we talked about last week, just so that we're clear. Uh, why Romans? Romans, we said last week, was written, of course, to Christians who were living in the heart of the Roman Empire. This is the uh, imperial center. And so, of course, it was the center or the site from which, the place from which, the dominant cultural narratives of the day, the stories of Rome, the things that Rome wanted you to believe about the way the world works, about who you were, about who God was, all of that was being pumped out of the city of Rome. And so I think Paul probably thought if he was going to write a letter that would sort of summarize his thinking, that would help him tell the story of the gospel in a way that like, people could maybe connect who Jesus was to their real life, he set out to do that in Romans. It's not that he didn't do that in his other letters. He just did it in a very specific and particular way in Romans. It is brilliant from beginning to end. And that's in part because Paul's pointing at this story that God's been telling all the way from Genesis through the resurrection of Jesus to say, this is our story. This is who we really are. And he wanted that to take root in Rome, believing, of course, that if it could take root in Rome, in this imperial center, that maybe it could start to subvert this other story that Rome told, which was in almost every respect a kind of antithesis to the story of Jesus. We said this last week, it just bears repeating. According to Rome, there was a kind of maxim. You all have heard of the Pax Romana. But this is like, similarly, we would say in English, if you want a kind of shorthand for it, the story of Rome went something like this. Power is Lord and security is peace. Power is Lord and security is peace. It was a story of Rome, and it, you know, worked. People like to believe that story. <clears throat> we want power, and we want security, and so it fits. And yet Paul was coming along telling this very different story about the person of Jesus, about this gospel that was different, 
power is not Lord. Jesus is Lord, which would suggest, therefore, that mercy, humility, and sacrificial love is Lord. That security is not peace. That actually vulnerability and sacrifice is the way of peace. And so Paul writes this letter in order to tell this story and put it into the hands of the Romans and subvert their story. And so we have talked about last week that similarly, I think, Lent exists as a call to the church to examine the stories that we live by, the things we believe in, and to give us practices that would help us to kind of jump off of one dominant cultural script in our world, because our script is not that different from Rome's after all. That story is, again, it was easy to believe then, it's easy to believe now. So if that's the story in the script we've been handed, Lent sort of exists to help us, like, jump off script, to give us practices, ways, things to do that would push our lives in a different direction. And we've been practicing some of those. Sabbath is one such practice, a very tangible way of saying, you know what, actually, I'm going to choose to believe that what God said is true, that I am not a machine, that I am not bound to work that is not the substance of who I am. Confession is another way of practicing that. That I can actually lead in vulnerability, admit when I'm wrong, and that's okay. It's not just okay, it's redemptive. Maybe that's the way of God. And today we're going to talk about another practice that I think is as tangible as both of those, as fasting, as Sabbath-keeping, as confession. And that is the practice, y'all, of hope. If you've been at Christ the King since I came in June, um, you're probably at this point thinking, that girl talks about hope a lot. (laughs) Um, I don't know that that's actually true of me always. Um, Not a bad reputation to have, though, if I was going to choose one. Um, But I actually think that there's something particular about this moment that I've been sort of fixated on hope. I actually really do, I think, believe that we're, we're desperate for it. That most of the people I meet, actually, maybe myself, that all of us actually, we are really desperate and in desperate need of practices of hope. Dr. King said that, um, he said this of of hope. He said, uh, hope is the vitality that keeps you moving, particularly when things are hard. Hope is the vitality that keeps you moving. In other words, hope is like this little engine, this force at the center of who you are that drives you onward and forward, especially in times of resistance, when things are not as they should be. We live in a world that is obsessed with particular visions of achievement and success. And I don't have to tell you what those are. You already know them. (coughs) But what that means then is when those visions of achievement and success are not being fulfilled in our own lives, it causes a kind of discomfort that's sometimes really paralyzing, particularly if it feels like we're living in this like prolonged season of where just like this story about who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do in order to be a successful person and my life just looked totally different. And isn't there something wrong with me, therefore? And that feeling of like, there's just kind of something wrong with me, you know? And if there was something, you know, less wrong with me, I could have all these things and Jesus too. And that's the way that it really should work for the people who get it right. They get all of the cultural trappings, all the bells and whistles, all of the rewards of having been a good, achieving, successful person, and they get Jesus too. And isn't that the good life? 
And when we don't have that and things don't line up and work out that way, then we feel broken. Like something's wrong. And you struggle to like find the energy or the vitality, as Dr. King would say, to like get up and push forward and keep going because the deck is stacked against you. I think a lot of us feel that way. And yet Paul says in Romans 5 something that's like absolutely, totally different than that. If the cultural narrative is that our vitality utterly depends on, in large part, our achievements, our success, our health, things going well and right by those standards, that's where we get vitality from. That's where I draw the energy to move forward when things are going really well for me and it looks like X, Y, and Z. Paul's saying something totally different in Romans 5. The antithesis, again, subverting and undermining one narrative for the sake of another. Paul says the opposite. He says, in fact, suffering, we boast in it. Strange. We boast in our suffering, and there's a reason that we boast in our suffering. Not just so that I can prove that I'm more hardcore than you, because that's the other story. That's still achievement. If I boast in my suffering only so that I can achieve being a better sufferer than you, do you know what I mean? I'm just better at things going bad for me than you are. It's because of Jesus. It just doesn't add up. That's not what he's saying. We boast in our suffering for a particular reason. We boast because it produces what? What does he say? Do you remember? You need to know this. If you are someone who struggles to find the vitality to move forward, I would submit to you that these words will be life for you. So commit them to your memory and to your guts right now as a grace. We boast in our suffering because suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces what? Character. And character produces hope. Paul saw suffering not as the counter to hope, not as a threat against hope, but actually the means for it. Its source. If we want to be people of of hope, Paul would say, well, then we must suffer. There's no getting around it. Hope is born out of things being hard. Happiness may be something else. Comfort may be something else. Even a kind of like inner peace may be something else. But hope, when we talk about it, you cannot actually know what it means to be hopeful unless you have endured and persevered through suffering and found it at the end. Actually, the word for character, I really love it. It's trustworthiness. And I like that a lot. The image was very specific in Paul's world. There were I don't have time to tell the story, but it has to do with money making. There was a practice of shaving coins down, and um, it became common practice, and it was a way of like reusing coins and recirculating bad coinage and kind of like counterfeit money. People who got used to making counterfeits or got in the habit of making counterfeits. And there was this group of people who refused to produce or put into circulation the counterfeit coins. And they became known in, as a kind of shorthand, the same root for this word as trustworthy, people of character, who refused to circulate counterfeits. That's what it means to be people of hope. 
We refuse to circulate counterfeits. I'm going to be a person of peace. I can only know real peace if I know what it means to feel steady in times that are really, really unsteady. I can only be a person of actual joy if I know what it means to laugh when I feel broken, to celebrate when I feel broken. Paul says, wouldn't that be something? What if we could be those kinds of people? I think this is actually the great spiritual contribution of the people of Israel. The Jews have been through it, you know, over and over and over again. And there's something, I think, like a spiritual heritage that they have to give to the world that is hope. Um, Case in point, there's a book called Man's Search for Meaning written by a guy named Viktor Frankl. Uh, Frankl was a psychiatrist. Uh, He was taken as a prisoner during the Holocaust and sent to concentration camps. He survived. And because he was a psychiatrist... He had a particular interest in people's suffering, the way that they endured and navigated through the camps, those who made it, those who didn't, those who had hope, those who didn't, and why. And so Man's Search for Meaning is kind of his own personal reflections on what it means to make meaning, our search for it, in a place like Auschwitz. How we connect meaning to survival and hope. He writes this about uh, his experience. He says, Dostoevsky, is the famed Russian author, said once, there's only one thing I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. These words, Frankel writes, frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their sufferings. The way they bore their suffering was a genuine inner achievement. It is this spiritual freedom, which cannot be taken away, that makes life meaningful and purposeful. It is this spiritual freedom that cannot be taken away, that makes life meaningful and purposeful. I think if we are going to be people of hope, we need two things. We need to know without question what is the source of our hope, and we need to practice for it. For those of you who were at JBU on Thursday, my apologies to you. This next bit's going to sound eerily familiar. I got to be at chapel at JBU and talk to a room full of college students about hope. And this is the part where we're all the same, no matter whether you're 18, 19, or 38, or 58. We need a source of hope. We need to be really clear on what it is, and we need to practice for hope and to be really clear on what it is. And so I'm going to say in short, not because I doubt that we know, just because it bears repeating, in so often as you gather together, Paul said. What is the source of our hope, Christian? At JBU, I asked the question, and some dear student in the back said, Jesus! (laughs) Um, Yeah, amen. He is, indeed. Um, And yet, what does it mean, you know? Jesus is a lot. There's a lot to know. Um, If you would ask Paul the same question, and this is where I think it's particular and helpful, if you would have asked Paul in the early church, what is the source of Christian hope? Because, of course, it is in Jesus, but it's a specific thing. Do you know what Paul would have said? My hope is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My hope is in the fact that he lives, 
The Christ is risen and has been raised. In other words, the source of Christian hope from the very beginning of the Christian story is the resurrection, which is always and endlessly fascinating to me as a kid who grew up in a different tradition, not talking much about the resurrection. I knew it was a thing, you understand, but had you asked me, what happens? Why is resurrection a source of hope for you? I would have said, well, I'm not sure exactly, but immortality sounds great. Very into that. You know, that's exciting. How it matters for me now, I feel fuzzy. Except for that I'm very afraid to die, and so maybe, you know, more life, I guess. That's not wrong, necessarily. But here's the thing that increasingly has come to mean more and more and more to me in my life. Um, which is this, that what we believe about resurrection is that what happened to the body of Jesus, a real person with flesh and blood, will not only happen to my body and your body, but to the entire cosmos, to the world. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead not only lives in me now, but that same spirit will, in fact, redeem, restore, and renew the entire creation. God's people will be raised, and the world that he loves will be raised. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. In other words, y'all, if God cannot lose hope and give up on this creation or on you or on me, neither can I. Do you see? God is relentlessly, fiercely committed to this vision and hope for us being a people of peace and love and communion with one another and with him. He cannot and will not get over it. It doesn't matter that he looks out in 2023 and probably struggles to find visions of it. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament where people like, um, I mean, it happens a couple of times, but people like Noah are like, no, 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 you can't flood the whole world. You just flood the bad ones. I'll go get the good ones and put them on my boat. And God's like, good luck. Go find them. And Noah's like, I can find 30 good people. Just give me a chance. And he goes out and he comes back. He's like, I can find 10 good people. I'm sure that I can. And those stories, of course, are meant to illustrate something, which is that it gets really hard. If you're really looking for the kind of righteousness that can combat sin and death in the world, it gets hard to find. And we all know that's true. And yet here's the thing about who God is, is he looks at you and he looks at the whole world and he says, I refuse to give up. I see it. The spark in her, the spark in him. I see it there and in this. It is my dream. I am committed to it. I won't let it go. And it is that love that drove him to the cross. Um, you guys know the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us? Oh, man, I love that song. I sing that song to my kids. I sing it in my car. I love that song. It's the, probably the Baptist in me. But she loves it. Here's the thing, though, about that song. Do you remember the line that says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? That's not untrue. But here's the thing I want to reframe for you slightly. It was not actually your sins for which Jesus died. Because I grew up saying that my whole life. Well, Jesus died for my sin. Yes, but it actually, 
was and may have been, in fact, my sin that drove him to the cross, y'all, but it was his love that held him there. And every time I sing that song now, I kind of change it in my brain. It wasn't my sin that held him on that cross. Sin is not strong enough to hold the God of creation to anything. Do you see? It was his love that held him there. His love for you is stronger than all your sin, all of our sin, all of this brokenness, all of this despair. His love is stronger. That is the gift of resurrection. Love is stronger. And if that is true ultimately, then that can be true no matter what my circumstances are. And I've had to look people in the face who are going through unbearable, unimaginable pain and say to them, all the death there ever was is not stronger than the love you feel and the love you have and the love you can make out of this and through this. And that's the truth. That's the gospel. So you need a source of hope. That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has been poured into your hearts. He has poured the love of God into your hearts. And that is how we persevere through that which is hard. You can't keep me from loving. You can't keep me from loving this person next to me, from doing the thing that is love, even in hopeless places. It's how we live. We need a practice of hope. If we have a source of hope, and I'll close quickly with this. There's a story, though, and I, again, JBU, I should have you come tell this if you were here. I'd love that. We talked about a chapel on Thursday, <clears throat> a story from the Old Testament that has become for me an image for what it means to practice hope, and I want to put it back in your brain, submit it to you so you can maybe hold on to it the way that I have when I needed it. There's a story in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 is a story of uh, Daniel in the lion's den. But this, is, this bit that I'm going to talk about today is the bit before the lions. Um, Daniel, do you remember, is a kid who got taken away from his home and sent to live in exile. He was, a, he was a young boy. And he grew up away from home as an exile in a world that didn't make any sense. His everyday reality in almost no way aligned with what he believed about who God was. So if you have been that for a season, if you feel like your everyday existence, almost everything that you are experiencing in yourself and in the world, you find it hard to align that experience with what you believe about who God is, what you hope for, Daniel lived his life that way. A lot of it, as an exile. And by the time he became an old man, <coughs> Darius, it was a new emperor in town, a new king, Darius issues an edict He's a spiteful king, and he had spiteful officials. And the edict went something like this. No one was allowed to pray to anyone but King Darius, and if they did, they would die. It's because these officials hated Daniel. He was beloved. They wanted to see him gone. They wanted rid of him. And so they knew the best way to get rid of him was, had something to do with what he loved. And what he loved was God. So they issued this edict. Daniel, of course, pays no attention to it because Daniel is old and faithful, and old people care less about what other people want them to do. And so Darius issues an edict, and Daniel ignores it completely. <laughs> and he gets up into his room, and Daniel 6 tells us he goes, he throws open the window to his room that faces out towards Jerusalem, and he gets down on his old wobbly knees, 
and he prays to the God of Israel just like he had done every single day that he had been in exile, multiple times a day. And the text tells us he opened his windows towards Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was for the Jew, in their imagination, the site of resurrection. It's where God was going to come and restore Israel, where God was going to fulfill and make good on his promises. It was going to happen in Jerusalem. And so Daniel oriented his entire body, literally and physically, toward the promises of God. Away from hopelessness, away from despair, away from a false story, and towards what he believed to be true, toward God and his promises, and he got down on his knees and he prayed. And here's the thing I love. Is it from the streets below, everybody who walked past Daniel's window, if you were a Persian official, you walked past his window, and what did you feel? Ah, that Daniel, he's at it again. I'm going to kill him. If you were a Jew, however, what would you feel? Hope, y'all. Because somebody somewhere had refused to give up on believing that God was going to make good on his promises. Somebody somewhere was choosing to believe in a world that was better and bigger than the Persia around them. And if you're a Jew on the street and you look up and you see those windows open, it is a reminder to you, it gives you the vitality that you need to move forward, to reorient yourself. So for me, I ask myself the question similarly. What does it mean for me to be a person who opens my windows to practice hope so that the people around me have a vision for what's true when we have so few reminders? Hope is not the absence, y'all, of fear or despair or doubt. It is what happens when we reorient those feelings towards what is true, towards the promises of God. Hope is not the absence of fear or despair or doubt. It is the reorientation of those feelings towards what is true. The promises of God. So for you practically, I don't know what it looks like exactly to practice hope. But I do think you choosing to love someone, to believe in things when it's hard, does more than you believe that it probably does. Has a greater impact than you're able to see. I mentioned in an offhand way uh, Wendell Berry's poem, Mad Liberation Front, last Sunday. I won't, I'm not going to quote from it, but go read it if you never have. It's called Manifesto, Mad Liberation Front. And the reason I'm going to recommend it to you is because Wendell Berry outlines really brilliantly very specific practices of hope. One of them, he says, and this one's my favorite, Be joyful, even after you've considered all the facts. Amen.